0: Hello and welcome back to The Indeed, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. host, Molly McNanny, And this week, Santa Barbara is taking to the streets. As you heard in last week's episode, reporter Alexandra Goldberg launched her two-part series on the Ukraine-Russia conflict through a local lens. This week, spotlighting Oksana Yakushko, a Ukrainian immigrant who has been active in marching and speaking out for Ukrainian support throughout Santa Barbara. But before that, we're covering the E! Matonari Street Painting Festival from May 28th to May 30th, which brings street artists from around the world to teach the local community about Italian chalk art. I'm here this week with Kai Tepper, Executive Director of Children's Creative Project and Coordinator of Festival Sponsorships for E! Madunari, to talk about this year's festival and how the Children's Creative Project continues to promote the arts throughout Santa Barbara. Oh, I really got to put up my Italian accent today, Kai. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So can you tell me a bit about the history of E! Madonari, the Italian Street Festival? And as I know it, it doesn't only happen in Santa Barbara.
1: Correct. Yeah. So... The uh, founder and former executive director for Children's Creative Project, Kathy Corey, she founded our organization, Children's Creative Project, um, in 1974, and it's an organization that promotes arts education in the in the schools and public schools. We're an uh, education program of Santa Barbara County Education Office, and in the 80s, she was introduced to this idea of italian street painting um she visited italy saw this amazing community art and thought that this would be a really wonderful opportunity to do santa barbara Um, so it's been in existence since 19 i think 1983 was its first year so we're in its 30 36th year um and it brings artists from you know all over santa barbara county as well as all over the the country really and and from my understanding, it's the first uh, festival of its kind in North America. So um, it's the, the festival Imananari has really, um, it's inspired festivals up in Canada, as well as in Central and South America. Um, I know one year through the Sister City kind of network, um, Kathy even went to Japan to Toba City um, and, and helped them with the festival. Um, but one of the. Biggest ones that she's she's been instrumental with is the Puerto Vallarta Chalk Festival, actually, um, which there the sister cities uh, are actually celebrating a fifty year anniversary, so it's kind of fun to to still be keeping that relationship going strong, and and I think that their their there is their chalk festival usually happens in uh, in the fall sometime, but yeah, it's a very kind of global globally connected festival.
0: That's wonderful. And I know you're talking about sister cities is also great because that kind of conjoins different art perspectives from around the world, which
1: is very exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm excited too, to kind of explore what kind of student exchange opportunities there might be through the arts. So, you know, especially just kind of drawing it back to our mission of serving Arts education for youth, um, and thinking about you know it'd be so great to have the cross-cultural exchange of sorts with students from all over the world, and and um, you know with the Puerto Vallarta sister city uh, committee partnership. Usually, this this year is unfortunately challenging because of the pandemic situation, and and getting visas was was a challenge. But typically, the Puerto Vallarta sister city uh, or the Puerto Vallarta chalk festival they do their festival as kind of a competition and so the winner will actually get flown up to santa barbara to participate in our our festival over memorial day weekend and so it's a fun exchange so i'm I'm really excited to explore what kinds of ways we might be able to do similar kinds of exchanges through through the student and youth arts space well i know we talked about this a bit before the interview
0: so people in Santa Barbara know E Madonari but how are you as executive director trying to connect this back to your work at Children's Creative Project which is kind of the big our youth arts center in Santa Barbara.
1: So yeah that's, that's that's a great question. I think that a lot of people are are very familiar with E Madonari. It's a well-loved event that has you know taken place over Memorial Day weekend for years and years and and it's a really amazing opportunity to bring artists of all ages together so we have often you know schools will come and participate what you know elementary schools uh we have some students from vada the visual arts and design academy at sand river high school which i'm actually an alumna of so that's that's kind of fun to have that connection there so i went to the program but our hope really is that people will not only experience e from this Place of you know the community coming together and enjoying you know just the beauty of these artworks created over a period, but really make that connection of how important it is that arts are accessible to all. And so we have during our festival we do have a kids area, which is intended to really be there for families to kind of drop in, and and those squares are they're they're fifteen dollars a square, and we have chalk accessible there, um, and so that's an opportunity for families to kind of drop in and their, you know, little four year old wants to just kind of get down on the ground and start drawing. But then, you know, it's, it's also I think a way for even, you know, say, high school students that are interested in arts. I mean, there's so many opportunities to connect the Kind of arts and events spaces to career technical education, or looking at different pathways in the arts that might, you know, lend itself to career opportunities for students. So, you know, as I mentioned before, Imadonari is our annual fundraiser. So all of the proceeds from the festival go directly to our arts programs. So our two primary programs currently are, are an artist in residency program, which pays for teaching artists to come into the classroom and do residencies depending on what the school needs so um, we focus on theater dance music visual arts so that's kind of one core program and the other core program is a touring artist program which provides opportunities for assemblies performances during the school day or even busing students to go see a free performance at places like the bowl the santa barbara bowl or the arlington or the granada so there's a lot of opportunity and kind of breadth that our organization can cover through supporting arts education and and hopefully you know people attending the festival can start to make that connection a little bit a little bit more more deeply
0: yeah and I was gonna say I'm glad you brought up chalk because it's quite a tactile even messy at times art form how do you feel like the children's creative project is taking those modes of art and approaching them in a new
1: way That's a good question. You know, I'm really interested, especially having, you know, having had experience working for an event venue, uh, or, you know, I I worked for the Santa Barbara Bowl for, for really actually the last 10 years, three years in the merchandise booth, and then seven years as the outreach program manager. And I think that there's a real responsibility and duty that venues have and event producers have in looking at issues of say, climate change, sustainability, inclusivity, And how can we approach, you know, what we do while also, you know, coming from this perspective of paying attention to those areas. So even with, with, with the chalk, you know, I'm thinking, you know, how are, what are ways that we can, we can be a little bit more environmentally conscious about it. So the artists that participate in our festival is a combination of either artists that sign up with a business sponsor or they're artists that are kind of part of our network that we reach out to. And so for the artists that are kind of within our network, we will even host a chalk making workshop, which hopefully at some someday I'd love to be able to extend that to kind of the greater public, because it's a, it's a really cool, you know, traditional process of of making your own chalk. But yeah, so I think in that in terms of, of that, you know, looking at just maybe the environmental, environmentally conscious kind of pieces of of how to Immer- be immersed in the arts um, while still being, you know, taking care of our community and our our environment. Yeah. So the other thing that I would say is, Imadonari, at you know, literally and figuratively on its surface, it is a street painting festival. And so for me, it resonates really deeply to to practices in other communities and cultures of muralism, right, mural painting and things like that. And so. I think there's there's something so wonderful about being seeing art being erected in public spaces. Um, I think that art, whether it's a chalk painting or you know whether it's chalk or painting on a on a, on the side of a building, um, they 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 can be landmarks for the community and these kind of beacons for for hope or beacons for justice or you know call to action or really just you know a way to. Respect the community and celebrate. There's there's so much deep tradition in public art of various forms, and I think especially for for young kids who you know have never you know maybe they maybe they have had limited access to arts in their schools or you know maybe they don't have access to supplies in their home whatever. Being able to come to Imadonari and have access to chalk and experience art in this in this very different way than maybe they're used to, I think is, is it can be really impactful and really meaningful to feel like you're part of something much bigger than yourself.
0: So who are some of the artists who are taking place in this year's festival, which is coming up this weekend, Memorial Day weekend.
1: Yeah. So every year we invite an artist from kind of our network to be the featured artist. So this year our featured artist is Dawn Morrison Wagner. She had been selected to participate a couple years ago, uh, but then unfortunately because of the pandemic, we had to cancel the event. So we're really excited to be able to give her this opportunity to come back and do the featured Artwork which will be twelve feet by sixteen feet, so it's a big piece. Dawn has participated in Emodernari. I think she said her first year was 1988 when she did her first street painting ever and fell in love with the medium. Um, so I just love that, like hearing that here is this you know veteran Emodernari artist who did her first chalk painting in 1988 and. I just hope that, gosh, you know, who, who I hope that that experience is going to happen for a new artist this year, and you know, maybe in a few years we can invite that person to to uh, to be the featured artist. So, um, a lot of our artists are returning artists who have participated for many years and they are incredibly talented at what they do and many of them are invited to festivals all over the country if not the world so we're really lucky and really fortunate to be able to have this caliber of artists in our own community that said i'm always really impressed too um even though this is my first year producing the event i have also participated in it as an artist and it's always just astounding to me what What artists are able to create even I mean, even seeing some of the high school students that are kind of collaborating and working together in teams to to put these remarkable pieces together. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Just, you know, this like little, (laughs) this little stick of chalk, you know, rub it on the pavement and, and uh, you can create some just, yeah, amazing, you know, optical illusions and things like that. So yeah, some of the other artists uh, on our, our list include like Sharon Chan and Rod Tryon. There's, there's a, big list of artists that I think people would be be familiar with. And if they don't know the artist's name, I'm sure they'd be familiar with the work because they're they're very, um, each of them is kind of very iconic in their own styles. Now, I know you mentioned
0: that you're from Santa Barbara and you went through these programs with art, but how did you get involved in, in this program in particular? And what about Santa Barbara makes it a special place to have the children's creative project when it comes to promoting the arts?
1: That's a great question. Yeah. So I was born and raised here and came from an artist or it came from a family uh, of artists and and musicians. And so there was always a lot of support for me to, to explore creativity. And I'm very grateful for that. I mean, I remember being as, you know, as young as fourth grade and taking a class through Ridley tree art center and thought, gosh, I want to, I want a career in the arts. And I had no, I mean, and that, that varied, like every year it would be like, I'm going to be a, you know, a graphic designer, to I'm going to be a professional painter, to I'm going to run a gallery someday. So I've had, I've had my fingers in a lot of different arts related jobs and and kind of career paths. But um, I went through the Visual Arts and Design Academy at Santa Barbara High School. And through that, was introduced to the Arts Fund that runs a teen arts mentorship program. So I did a mentorship program, and then in in college I ended up going back to the Arts Fund to um, do an internship, and that very soon turned into being hired on as the assistant director, and then for a brief time their executive director. But at the time, like I said, I you know I was curating shows, I was working on community collaborations. Um, I've I've always. Believed in the arts as a catalyst for social change and so community building is a really important part of my own kind of personal artistic practice and so through that community building lens I was eventually offered the position to be the outreach program manager at the Santa Barbara bowl and that's where I really was introduced to children's creative project um without realizing that children's creative project was an organization that I had also benefited from uh as a, as a young student here growing up so historically our organization has really focused on elementary schools and so I remembered being at Washington Elementary School and seeing a Boxtails performance or a Michael Katz storytelling performance and thinking and remember, I mean, I just remember the impact of that, especially because they would focus on they would focus on folk tales from around the world. And um, being a student of multicultural background, it was really important to me to feel seen and to feel like my culture was being celebrated. And so, I think that that's something that I'm really excited about in being in this role now with Children's Creative Project is really looking at how to elevate the diverse voices and diverse communities that that thrive and that have thrived in santa barbara and i think that you know obviously there's the kind of the geographic landscape that makes santa barbara so beautiful right like nestled underneath these you know (laughs) these beautiful mountains and being on this amazing coastline you know i think the way that it's situated it's somewhat been protected from being totally overdeveloped, like other communities have. Um, but there's also, I think, you know, a complicated, a very complicated history with with Santa Barbara and, you know, being being Asian-American, you know, and knowing that Santa Barbara once had this thriving Asian-American community, and a lot of those landmarks no longer exist. And so, you know, I, I, I can't help but try to do my part to really, you know, through the arts, give voice to these communities that maybe have lacked representation and, and, or, you know, are not being given an opportunity to, you know, sit at the table. And so for me, like all of that really comes back to education and making sure that all students of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, abilities, that they're all being given the same amount of, you know, attention and and support that they need.
0: Yeah. Arts is a mean for, you know, self-expression, but also an understanding of of who you are and where you come from and your culture and things like that is very important for kids because it is a it is one of the most unique experiences to go through these programs you know not everyone comes up with the same art the creative brain is is very interesting even to be studied like scientifically so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up too but i know you mentioned this before the interview but i have to ask your own personal thing you know pianos on state group what's going on with that and you did mention that they're with the revival of covid could we see more music on the streets of santa barbara just like we're seeing art on the streets of santa barbara with this?
1: Yeah, Pianos on State is, is again, such a great example of how arts in public spaces can create these impromptu experiences for people to come together and feel inspired. What I love about Pianos on State is, you know, in any of these public art projects, it's really a community collaboration and it takes a village right like I cannot say enough how grateful I am always to the sponsors who believe in these projects to the organizers who spend you know (laughs) sleepless nights just like trying to tie loose ends to make sure that it happens but then also just you know the community that believes in the in the value of these projects because if it weren't for the communities reception to these projects they wouldn't happen and with pian- with you know with pianos on state one of my favorite parts about it um too is you know we we put those pianos out and then you know the the homeless population will come out and i'm always just so humbled and appreciative of how well you know they they, they really respect the pianos and a lot of them haven't had an opportunity to, to play an instrument in who knows how long and i've had some remarkable conversations with some of our homeless population um that come out to play and and you know their 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 face lights up and they talk about how you know they were once a musician in santa monica and they haven't been able to play a piano in years and just how 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 um you know grateful that they are that they're being able to give that you know have that opportunity but then also kind of similar to like you know handing a kid a chalk to do their first street painting you know I, i i've seen so many times um you know these these young students or young kids being sat at the piano bench you know they're able to sit down and have that again that tactile experience um which you know, I think to be able to create is such a human endeavor, right? Like, I think there's just so much power in that. We have talked about, you know, are there ways for, you know, e and, you know, Children's creative project to partner with communities, art workshop, um, you know, and maybe even solstice in, in some kind of creative collaborative ways in the future. So we will see, but... Yeah. I mean, I'm all about, again, you know, community collaboration and how do you leverage, you know, how do you support each other in the work that you're doing, but how do you also leverage, you know, resources and share resources and ideas to really create, you know, build upon what already exists, but then create something new out of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I myself have have sat down at one of those pianos and played for a minute too, which was kind of my first, uh, When I was first in Santa Barbara, what was that, like five years ago before I I moved there and, you know, was sat down and was like, oh, this is this is cool. Like, this is awesome. So, yeah, having that experience on State Street and seeing other people and maybe even playing a song other people know and then people start singing. And it's kind of a crazy thing how people are like, wait, I know that song. And they'll just come over and start singing. And you're like, oh, okay, like, cool. Like, I was just playing the piano. But yeah, I really I really do appreciate you coming on the show, though, and sharing about how connected all of the different aspects of art in Santa Barbara are, because I think that we can talk about music, we can talk about the bowl, we can talk about E. Madunari, we can talk about solstice, we can talk about, you know, all of the different, you know, music venues and things like that, small venues and performance and things like that, but they really are all connected. So, and I'm happy to hear that you are trying to even further connect that more to the youth and the next generation. So I really appreciate you talking not only about E. modinari, but about art in general, (laughs) which I, I love to talk about as well. But is there anything else you'd like to add about the festival about the future
1: yeah i i think you know the biggest the biggest takeaway for me is is really you know whether it's with ima or any of these public art programs it really is about centering the arts so that they are accessible for all and you know of course my position here is focused so much on serving serving youth and serving Serving the schools and and my my philosophy is that really, you know, at the at the core of healthy communities are healthy schools, I think schools are really pillars of uh, of the community, and you know because it's it's where you know, obviously it. We have teachers who work tirelessly to support students, but but also our families. And I think that's just critically important to be able to make sure that that there's equitable access for arts. And I'm hoping that through through my years, you know, moving forward with Ima Dinari, we can continue to expand on that and continue serving our community as best we can.
0: Well, thank you so much, Kai Tepper, for joining me on the Indie Podcast this week. and. I look forward to seeing all of the new art that's coming up this weekend.
1: Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, I hope to see I hope to see you at the festival and thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Now for the second part of reporter Alexandra Goldberg's two-part series on the Ukraine-Russia conflict as told right here in Santa Barbara. She sits down with Ukrainian Oksana Yakushko to dissect the crisis from afar. Anything. I want to thank everyone coming here. Good always wins. Yes. Thank you for fighting the good fight.
2: Thank you, yes.
0: Good and God will always win.
2: Thank you very much. You know, this is a really powerful reminder of what we are all fighting for. In democracy
3: you have freedom of speech, you have freedom of
0: information. And it's on that free information that the decisions of a society are based, the accountabilities of the leaders are based on that information.
1: And you see in Russia that you have a totalitarian regime that controls information
2: and it poisons the minds of the people there and they do not understand what is actually happening. In Ukraine, you have a democracy, you have freedom of speech, you have free information, and we need to make sure that that bastion of democracy, the last one in the region, does not fall. Okay. Yes. yes.
3: Throughout the duration of Russia's attacks on Ukraine, the Santa Barbara community has come out to show their support. I'm Alexandra Goldberg, and this week on the Indy, I'm covering the second part of our two-part series on the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as seen through a local lens. The music you just heard was hummed throughout the Santa Barbara County Courthouse on February 28th, the day where the World Dance for Humanity performed a prayer dance at the Santa Barbara Rally for Ukraine. Among the protests and speeches you just heard, video courtesy of Christo Artugio, Santa Barbara residents dressed in yellow and blue and gathered in support of Ukraine. One of those attendees is Dr. Oksana Yukushka, psychologist, psychoanalyst, and professor of psychology in Santa Barbara. I sat down with Oksana to discuss the war in Ukraine and what it's like to watch your homeland go under attack from afar. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Oksana. I wanted to start off by asking, how are you doing? As you immigrated from Ukraine about 30 years ago, can you share with me your thoughts and feelings about watching your homeland and family? under attack?
2: It has been heartbreaking. I have family there, and I have always had family. Most of my immediate family and friends remained in Ukraine. And although I have mostly been based for these last 30 years here, I identify as Ukrainian and have many connections and certainly make many trips back to Ukraine, I consider it my home. So uh, to watch My people, my land, my family, places I grew up with, um, history, historical museums, animals, plant life, be destroyed by senseless war is heartbreaking. Also, you know, I have a real distinct, like most Ukrainians, feelings of rage and anger and sometimes hopelessness and occasionally guilt because we're here and so many people a suffering in Ukraine. And it's, uh, I feel it's um, our, our duty and responsibility to support Ukraine and Ukrainians in this time. I hear you, Oksana. I stand with you
3: today and always. And now are you located in Santa Barbara currently?
2: Yes, I am. I've lived here now for 13 years. And
3: do you have any plans on returning back to Ukraine anytime in the future?
2: you know, I have had more wishes to return to Ukraine and be with Ukrainians now than I had for a long time, because I think in part it's to join in solidarity. In part, it is just to make connection with my land and my my friends and family and um, our customs and traditions. So I definitely have some renewed wishes to return.
3: Oh, definitely. And
2: You know, speaking of which, what are your family and
3: friends almost reporting back to you? What are they saying the environment and circumstances are like now?
2: In terms of my own family, my immediate family were in uh, uh, areas outside of Kiev which have been on the news in some terrible ways. And uh, they did escape ahead of both occupation, though my mother stayed through much of the military aggression and then barely escaped. And then they made out, uh, my sister and her children, in Western Europe, And my mother now is with me here and she's she's visited Santa Barbara many times. And they, you know, live with a whole lot of, um, you know, worry about Ukraine and sorrow and uh, reactions. But, you know, they are physically safe. And then a lot of my um, other family members and friends certainly talk about how the war continues um, there are air raids almost every day, almost everywhere in Ukraine. Um, it uh, there are also uh, some uh, just destruction everywhere. Some of my uh, family members lived and work in cities like Arpin, which are you know where the torture death zones uh, during Russia occupation, and it's tough to return to places where your neighbors, friends, and um, your community may have been tortured and everywhere there's signs of destruction so they're struggling with kind of what is next uh certainly while ukrainians are brave and amazing and i would witness that be first to witness that uh, they also are under tremendous stress of horrific war and so they have to live with both kind of fighting for freedom and fighting for uh, their right To exist, basically, to live and be alive, but also with this ongoing slaughter and uh, aggression, and um, so some of them do report these days to things like you know what is happening to the jobs, what is happening to you know about I think one third to one half of Ukrainians had to let go of their jobs. You know, things have shifted. Um, both internal and external migration, I think, stands somewhere around between 7 and 10 million of Ukrainians, which is there's only 40 million of Ukrainians in Ukraine. It's a lot of people. Um, there are, you know, uh, gasoline has been, you know, we complain, but they hugely expensive. Seven hour lines to get uh, gas in the car and uncertainties about food supplies, uncertainties about future And so that's the kind of things. And then also this great determination to say it's um, our land, it's their land, it's their lives, it's their freedom, it's their right. And a lot of people have united. So I've noticed, for example, even those of us who were Russified and were made to speak Russian primarily, we've all turned to Ukrainian, Ukrainian traditions, Ukrainian solidarity. And so just the whole country is standing in ourselves, united against this senseless, brutal, unjustified and um, incredibly um, uh, uh, violent aggression by Russia against Ukraine.
3: It is devastating and and the effects are just inconceivable on the people and the environment and my heart goes out and I'm you know more than more than glad that your family and friends are safe at this time. Oksana I want to learn from you about what you think governments around the world should be doing to support the Ukrainian people and protect democracy.
2: I think that although you know just want to start of course we with you know seen a response to 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 bolster it to strengthen to say any aggression of such magnitude anywhere should be stopped and prevented. Today is the ninth day of uh, invasion so since invasion on February 24th that's 90 days and on the other hand governments meet a lot to debate, discuss, argue uh, use kind of these ideological discussions about you know um, uh, NATO and so forth and it prevents governments from acting swiftly and decisively against an imperialist, violent war that cost people lives and their land and livelihood. And also the world, since Ukraine is a kind of breadbasket of the world, the kind of realities of incoming starvation for a whole lot of people in the world because of Russia's attack on Ukraine. And so I think, you know, from the very beginning, you know, in my view, the sky should have been closed. I think, the world has enough of military power and social power and gathered power to stand up to this violent aggression. And I would say in many Ukrainians' minds, it's been slow and inconsistent. And Russia and pro-Russian propaganda is active. And it is can be found, in my experience, on far right and far left and somewhere in between. And it's confusing to people and just to kind of stand in the place to say inhumane, violent aggression of a nation against another independent nation uh, in like militaristic ways that are uh, uh, very problematic because Russia has not just attacked, it militarily attacks with bombings uh, directed bombings at civilian targets. So majority of targets Russia hits and it hits them intentionally civilian targets with civilians, pe- peaceful population and that's prohibited by all international laws. It defies Geneva Convention because it both um, imprisons and you know military personnel and tortures them. Russia has deported, what the numbers are, a couple hundred thousand, mostly children, stripping them of their documents and identities and, and uh, information and p- p- unknown locations in, in Russia. These are kind of war crimes, in addition to intentional gang rapes and uh, torture and executions. That uh, of course are being sent and presented to military, you know, international courts like the human rights courts in Hague. But in my view, you know, it just, and I think to echo Ukrainians, we just must stop the war. We always talk about, you know, humanitarian causes and refugees and the crisis, but the crisis is worsening day by day unless the world unites and stops this aggressive military power. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the Geneva Convention, which is this uh,
3: global legislation that world leaders have decided to keep countries accountable for war crimes. You mentioned that civilians are being targeted. The Geneva Convention explicitly states that you cannot target civilians, you cannot target medical centers and such. Now, casting into the future, do you think that Russia will be held accountable for um, violating the Geneva Convention?
2: You know ukrainian hope and my hope that of course they are and in fact i think russia should prepare for not only being held accountable in all kinds of ways but also you know it will need to offer reparations and its money in the future is going to go uh, to ukraine to build ukraine as it should because that they were the aggressor who who so violently um attacked uh, ukrainians uh, however, you know, just it's it's tough to cast in the future and think once again if we really are united. We we uh, it is so important that we hold um, not just Putin or Kremlin, but everyone who voted for him, which is eighty uh, percent of uh, people in the Russian Federation. Anybody worldwide, including you know far right propagandists here in this country that um, promote Putin. You know, I think, you know, there we we get into, you know, it's my kind of vision of like who gets to be held responsible. But certainly I want to say that Ukrainians have identified, I believe, um, uh, over a thousand military, low level military personnel who were directly, directly responsible for rapes, tortures. Um, and other form of uh, um, executions of peaceful civilians, because today we have facial recognition. And so they actually, you know, there's ways that people know, you know, they are going to be known by name and location. And so I think like all Ukrainians, in addition to Putin and his uh, government and um, everyone who supports him, you know, all the Russian military, especially, people who have directly blood on their hands, blood of children and um, elderly should be held absolutely responsible. You know, we'll have to all as a world community decide what it means, but I think no such crimes should be unpunished.
3: The Ukrainian revolution in 2014 is often depicted as the breaking point, the peak of tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Today on the show, Oksana walked me through the broader history of relations
2: and said the tensions between the countries have been centuries long. Most of us Ukrainians stress that the tension between Russia and Ukraine actually centuries long. So Russian empire occupied Ukraine and enslaved Ukrainians and there's a Ukrainian national movement, including the anthem that is played is from 19th century. So, and it's a, a very anti Russian, pro Ukrainian anthem. When the Soviet Union broke up, it also occurred after Chernobyl, which most Ukrainians have absolutely named uh, kind of a pro Soviet, Russo Soviet violation of their rights. Before that, Rafael Lemkin um, defined uh, Holodomor, which is, uh, was um, murder by starvation was conduct, carried out by Russians to control Ukrainians and to murder um, Ukrainians. And the UN numbers are, you know, there's numbers because we don't know actual numbers. You know, there's somewhere 5 million Ukrainians. UN number goes up to 10 million Ukrainians were purposefully starved in two years, 32 and 33. And so there's been a national independent movement fighting against Russian occupation for years, And when Ukraine became independent following the breakup of the Soviet Union, there was a huge national uprising and movement. And since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Russia has meddled in election. It's in Russian empire, through Soviet empire, it has uh, declared that Ukraine is theirs, that they want Ukrainian resources. It's denied Ukrainians language and culture and so forth. So, Putin's been set on this course for years, and people who document his speeches and history know that it occurred long before. So, Russian propaganda pushes, like, you know, revolution of Maidan, but Ukraine has been trying to elect leaders and de elect and leaders who've been promoting this Russian. It's the same with Belarus, for example, where they have a dictator, and Russia would love to have a pro Russian dictator. And it's been pushing people. It's been poisoning, for example, Orange Revolution. It poisoned the president then elected uh, for in that was in long before it might be done in 2014. And then Yanukovych, who was the president then, uh, ordered to kill Uh, civilian Ukrainians because they were protesting against, again, Russian invasion into Ukraine and Russian control of Ukraine. So Ukraine's been in centuries fighting it. Maidan revolution was, you know, just the most recent uprising of Ukrainians against invasion of Russian Federation in numerous ways into Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian culture. And it's been using these justifications over and over and over to say we want Ukraine and we you don't exist. And we, you know, uh, Ukrainian language should not exist. Ukrainian culture does not exist. And you're Nazis because you have national identity. And so Ukrainian, and then annexed uh, Crimea. It attacked East, uh, Eastern territory, installed all of its governments, uh, tortured and removed anybody who protested. So this is Russia. When they show these lands, this is Russia. And I, you know, so Putin's been on this um, uh, path probably since he was a KGB agent and it was Soviet Union and he openly talks about it. And so this aggression to Ukrainians is not new. And that's why our songs are 100 years old, customs around, you know, protecting ourselves from this invasion by an enslavement by Russians who are intent to erasing Ukraine is old. And that's why, you know, just it's it's history that's not discussed. I find as a Ukrainian, U.S. media and U.S. Wikipedia and U.S. books are filled with pro-Russian propagandists that would like to present that it's only since 2014 that Ukraine has been, you know, uh, uprising and it's led by Nazis, which is absolutely a historical and so wrong and offensive to Ukrainians, but that's just what we what we stress and now. Well, thank you so much for that clarification and sharing the
3: extensive history. And I hope that my listeners will be able to educate themselves um, with, with the fuller story and with the extensive history as you named. And now looking into the future, how do you predict the crisis will be solved? Is it different from how you think it should be solved?
2: Oh, you know, I, you know, like all Ukrainians, we want war and violence to stop. So um, I think it's untenable to ask Ukrainians to surrender themselves, as some people say, to a fascist, murderous government. If one wants that, I want to step back with them and say, you consider your own personal life and know what you know about Russia so far and what it's done know about its horrific violations and its attack on democracy in its own country you know you cannot speak freely you can't do anything freely you have a dictator and you have oligarchs you know it's a capitalist oligarchy that is a authoritarian dictatorship would you like to live in such country should you surrender to such country and if you stand with ukrainian flag or speak in ukrainian that you're thrown in prison where you're tortured and killed would you like that? Because that's the fact. And so anytime I hear people say, you know, peaceful solution, surrender, I'm thinking about at what point does one consider to whom we're surrendering? Would, should Jews be considering to just, you know, lay down and surrender to Nazi Germans? What are they going to do with them? That is the history. That's a reality. And human commu- like our community should be clear about what it is that they're asking Ukrainians to do. So they have to fight and they will fight. And no matter what happens and how Russia is brutal, militarized to the teeth government, and they're willing to do everything, including daily, every every other day, threatening Ukraine with nuclear weapons. Will they use them? You know what? I I pray they do not, but they might. They've shown such lack of respect for anything, any human life or convention. And so, you know, I just think, um, would you? Would you just to the listener like to live in such a government under such threat and surrender under such conditions? So Ukraine, sooner or later, all the Ukrainians and all the occupied lands protest at the risk of their lives. They're standing with Ukrainian flags. And each of us knows this and sees this. And, you know, um, Crimea is Ukraine. Kherson is Ukraine. You know, Mariupol is Ukraine. We, we all everybody protests and comes out. And so this brutal dictatorship and imperialist invasion sooner or later would be would be dissolved but at what cost what at what cost so i think as a best solution we as the world indeed unite we you know respond to this military aggression with everything we've got to stop it at a certain point i hope that as the world we look at this and say i think we should all get rid of one such military uh, per, uh, arsenals that are used against humans why even have such weapons and then we have a much stronger, much stronger responses to dictatorships, military invasions, and humane things because we don't. A Ukrainian example shows us how is the world has sort of failed. We, you know, to to respond. UN, where is UN? You know, it's like to Ukrainians, it's like everyone sits in debates. Okay, you know, and you know, we're against the war. Okay, but what what? It doesn't stop the aggression, right? And so I just want to maybe imagine the world. Where we do not have such invasions and wars, where we do not have such weaponry, and we identify dictatorships, uh, you know, <laughs> quickly we identify fascist regimes. And to be clear, that you know Russia has become the most far right white nationalist country in the world, and by the way, funds the white nationalists and fascist groups in U.S. and elsewhere. And we need to, you know, we we should have been looking at that and stopping them on the early side rather than listening to pro-Russian propaganda and say it's Nazis in Ukraine who want independence. So that's my, you know, we need to learn from this. But at this point, I just hope and pray the world comes together and stops. Right,
3: right. And last week on the indie
2: podcast,
3: we talked about the fragility of democracy and how this is a prime example of how all of these democracies in the world are fighting to save this You know, this child of the world that is, it's new, and it's fragile, and it's very clearly volatile. So this Mm -hmm. is a fight for democracy and a fight for the future. To bring it to a more local level and to hone it into Santa Barbara specifically, is there anything to be done half a world away here in Santa Barbara?
2: I think always everywhere, right? I think one, we just educate ourselves, not turning away from the news, because I know we get fatigued, and we just heard this, you know, other horrific news every day of people killing senselessly other human beings. But you know, we need to do pay attention to what's happening in our communities, but to not forget U- Ukraine and Ukrainians, because it is a world struggle that impacts us all. I do want to say from Santa Barbara, I feel deep gratitude just today. I was at the Santa Barbara County Board of Supervisors meeting, where there was a statement made, a proclamation against the Russian aggression in Ukraine, against the war, and it's it was wonderful to hear it from a local government and I am so grateful the uh, co- county local supervisor Das Williams and uh, others have from day one stood with Ukraine supported made support to Ukrainians who protested and uh, I learned that our local firefighters from all of our local fire uh, houses have been working with Ukrainians to train them about the use of advanced firefighting equipment, because Ukrainian firefighters are climbing into burning apartment buildings trying to save humans and sometimes animals who are. You know just been bombed and so they the you know the firefighters were there and honored you know the local community and part of women who stay on state street and try to raise awareness and sell Ukrainian cookies and to we sell we buy tourniquets because small hospitals in Ukraine are running out of simple supplies like tourniquets. Also direct relief has been remarkable. I want to you know kind of give shout out to them. Santa Barbara Film Festival did enormous good by both featuring ukraine and encouraging its stars to present and by the way it's such a boost to ukrainians to see local communities world stars anybody you know marching supporting because it's reported in ukrainian news it gives them a sense that people are not forgotten but you know i want to mention a couple of other things we do have russian oligarchs and sometimes i think about how our community hosts these individuals and i I am, as Ukrainian, have been aware that we we have oligarchs owning homes in Montecito and coming, the biggest yachts that come to Santa Barbara, Russian, huge yachts from oligarchs, things like, I just found out that Granada Theater is putting on Anastasia. Okay, it's a musical, children's musical, but it promotes Russia and Russian imperialism, and I am not comfortable with that in times of war. And so just to be mindful of these kind of acts, small and large, which both promote kind of Uh, Russian imperialist kind of history and which is, you know, promoting Russian czars who've been oppressive to so many communities is hugely problematic to me in terms of my standing in the world. But, you know, just to be mindful of the fact that this is our every choice we make, we make every time we pump gas and we complain or worry about it. We also think about that's a human life. That is our effort to stop aggression against kids and elderly and animals and land and everybody. Absolutely. And
3: thank you for bringing to my attention how our personal actions can play a role in this war and play a role in who we support and how we make our choices and who it benefits in the bigger picture, who it disadvantages in the bigger picture. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, is there anything else you would like to add?
2: Thank you to everybody who's uh, stood with Ukraine. And thank to you and the Indy and um, everyone who's, um, you know, been staunch supporters against this aggression. Um, and so I just want to maybe end with say, I think, you know, we just need to revisit and revisit together the um, the Holocaust, the Holocaust, the um, genocides, the kind of histories and totalitarian histories, that, and kind of remind ourselves it can happen. It happen. It's happening today, and kind of how we both understand and how we fight against that. So I guess maybe I'll end with you know, they're just we we we're not first, and we're not alone, and we need to stand together, learn from people in the past who've done it, and. Um, Add our voices, add our voices, creative, powerful voices together to say, how do we not have a world where such violence occurs? So that's that would be, I think, my final thoughts. We mustn't let history
3: repeat itself any longer. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Your voice is so valuable. It was a pleasure to bring you on the show, to share the history, the larger implications, and your sentiments towards the war and how it's meaningful for not only you, for our listeners and the broader Santa Barbara community. Uh, not to say the whole entire world stands with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you again. Yeah. and It was such a pleasure to speak with you.
2: Thank you. Thank yeah. you and that wraps
3: up the indies two-part series covering the russia ukraine conflict from a local lens last week we spoke with local political leaders and this week you just heard oksana Yukushka, a santa barbara resident speaking about her hometown in ukraine thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week reporting for the indy i'm alexandra goldberg
0: Once again, I'm your host, Molly McEnany. Tune in next week for another episode.